Have you heard about our latest subscription offer? Subscribe to an Irish Examiner annual subscription today and receive a free pair of OneSonic earphones valued at $79.99. Stay informed with our award-winning journalism and enjoy your favourite podcasts in premium sound. Visit irishexaminer.com forward slash earphones to subscribe now. Hurry, this offer won't last long. Terms and conditions apply. Offer available while stocks last. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp. As a podcast listener, you've heard from us before. Today, let's hear from our members about what online therapy has done for them. I would recommend my therapist 1,000 times over. She has truly changed my life. The day after my first session, my friends and family said I sounded like myself again for the first time in weeks. You deserve to invest in your well-being. Visit BetterHelp.com to see what it can do for you. That's BetterHelp.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish Examiner podcast series to mark the centenary of the War of Independence. I'm Mick Clifford. In today's podcast, we look at the conflict as it occurred in the Munster region and particularly Cork. To discuss this, I'm joined by John Borgonova, who lectures in UCC's School of History and is also co-editor of the Atlas of the Irish Revolution. John, there's been a certain mythology about the War of Independence in Cork. Is it deserved to the extent, was the war in Cork more intense than it was in other parts of the country? Yes. The short answer is yes. Um, I would say that it's not just Cork where the war is, is intense. It's pretty much just the entire province of Munster. So it, Limerick sees a lot of action. So does Tipperary, uh, Clare. Parts of Clare, parts of Kerry, parts of uh, kind of West Waterford. But the war here is much more militarized than it is in other parts of the country. Uh, it's There's a lot more action. There's a lot more reprisals. Uh, and it's some of the most, it puts together some of the most galvanizing episodes of the whole conflict. Why is it more intense? So there are a few different things going on. One is if you look at just like, mobilization, like Republican organization and support for the independence movement. Support for the independence movement is stronger in the western part of the island. So if you took it, if you divided Ireland into half, Connacht and Munster have a, a lot stronger Republican support than Ulster and Leinster do. Munster is probably a little bit wealthier and they're a little bit more urbanized than Connacht and they put together networks of Republican organizations that are quite effective. So if, even if you go back to 1916 and around the Easter Rising, the most effective Irish volunteer organizations outside of Dublin were in Cork, or in Kerry, or in Limerick. And what happens after 1916 is because the Irish volunteers don't rise up uh, here in Munster, it means there's not a backlash from the British. They're not massive arrests. 
um, the, 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 the organization isn't smashed up. If you look at the part of the country where there was a rising in Wexford and in Galway, those organizations were just wrecked afterwards. So what you see in Munster is you have well-organized, kind of urban-centric um, Republican organizations, especially the Irish Volunteers, that are intact after 1916. And so they're in a really good position to rapidly expand and to kind of improve themselves. And they get rid of kind of their officers, their leaders who maybe aren't that militant, and they're up for it. And so what you see in 1918 and 1919 is you see IRA units in Munster who are initiating the conflict, not just in Solhead Beg, not just Sean Tracy and Dan Breen, also in Kerry, also in Cork City, also in North Cork, also in, in Limerick. It's the same dynamic and it's the same kind of aggressiveness. And those aggressive Munster organizations fire the first shots of the War of Independence, and they basically start to build up uh, a, a, an organization that is not just aggressive, but also effective. And it raises the morale, and they get weapons, and they just kind of take it on. So the, one of the things about, one of the misconceptions of the War of Independence is it wasn't really pre-planned. The, the idea that somehow Michael Collins is calling the shots is a myth. The IRA was decentralized and it was up to local initiative to see how this really evolved. And what you get is similar, well-organized, aggressive IRA units in various parts of Munster do pretty much the same thing, which is they start the hostilities early, they develop an expertise, and they continue that aggression. And what you have in Cork is an especially well-organized uh, uh, IRA uh, series of units, not just in Cork City, but also in West Cork, also in North Cork. And they're the best organized and most effective IRA organizations in the whole country. The individuals who are involved in the volunteers there, John, are they are, are a cohort of them full-time? Are they young men and women and coming them on, going about their everyday lives and working and then doing this as an aside, effectively. So most of them, almost all of them are part-time. Almost all of them work. Uh, everybody in the movement is has a day job until probably early to mid-1920. Then what you start to see is after these initial IRA attacks uh, and there's a, a response from the British eventually. They bring in the black and tan, the British and the British army, but they also start to arrest people or try to arrest people. And that draw, drives a lot of the best known leaders, uh, on the, puts them on the run. And that's when they start to leave their jobs. That's when they start to leave uh, their households and, and become full-time fugitives. And then once they're full-time fugitives, they become more professional and more even singular and better devoted to their volunteer duties. But even then, if you go, if even going forward, the vast majority of IRA guys were still worked and lived at home all throughout the War of Independence. And even folks who were, who were on the run, oftentimes that meant you just didn't sleep in your house at night, it meant you still went to your day job. So, there, so like there were very few people who were full-time fugitives, full-time revolutionaries. Mostly this was a part-time enterprise. In terms of the public support vital in that type of uh, a, a conflict, a guerrilla-based conflict, 
was there greater public support in the Cork and the broader Munster area from, you know, safe houses, etc., the, the various type of support that's given that way than there was in other parts of the country? I would say you had strong support in Munster. You also had strong support in Connacht. Uh, stronger than... In, Cork was probably the best organized public support. Cork also, one difference in, in other parts of the country was it had a really effective political base here in Cork City that did their own, performed their own propaganda and were trying to mobilize public opinion. So you had a lot of that going on and that was kind of radiating out. Uh, and I think that had an effect on the overall public support. Uh, the British felt like that everybody was hostile to them in the county. That was obviously, you know, an exaggeration. That was probably partially their own paranoia. But when you think, when you look at events like um, the assassination of Tomas McCurtain or the hunger strike of Terence McSweeney, the outpouring of public support was crazy. Like, like uh, McSweeney's, uh, uh, there was a, I think, a third or about 40% of the city's population signed a petition uh, demanding his release. Uh, McCurtain's funeral attracted 100,000 people in a city that had a population of 70,000. So everybody turned out for I mean, everybody, regardless of their politics, turned out for McCurtain's funeral. So what you have is you have a, a level, a degree of civic support and popular support. Now, that doesn't mean everything the IRA did was celebrated and, and, and lauded, uh, but it meant that um, they, had, they had a basis and a really kind of strong foundation, and that was able to, able to sustain them when things got tough, especially later in 1920. Cork, being, Cork City being the real only big urban centre outside of Dublin, John, was there a different character to the conflict within Cork City as opposed to the county and the out, outlying areas in Munster? I mean, there, it was, there was like a lot of street ambushes and stuff in Cork. There was a lot of, uh, there, there was really heavy intelligence, IRA intelligence in Cork. Like they were very well organised in Cork. Because think about Cork, it's not just, it's not just it's a city, it's also a port. It's the, it's the main military headquarters for the British Army in Munster at that time, the 6th Division, which is up at now Collins Barracks. It was the police administration center for kind of South Munster. Uh, it, ha- it was like the center for the Royal Navy. So it had all, so it's a really big uh, logistical and communications hub for the Crown Forces. And all that was being kind of under observation and a degree of infiltration by the IRA. So there was a lot of that. There was also just a lot, uh, the, there was a, a significant number of civilian suspects, people suspected of providing information to the British were assassinated by the IRA, like 27 or 28, which is more than anywhere else in the country by a long shot. Uh, and then there was also, as I said, a, a number of street ambushes, a number of big ambushes where they're going off and throwing grenades at lorries and shooting up. And, and there's a lot of a lot of back and forth and, and kind of civilians getting hit in the crossfire. Yeah, and you mentioned people who were shot as, as informers. Was there any controversy around that in terms of how sure they might have been in the first instance that they were targeting the correct people? So this is a big subject of debate for among historians. You know, how accurate was the IRA intelligence uh, in terms of who they were targeting. And I wrote a book about that. It kind of was my, my first book. Um, and what I would say about all that is that the IRA 
thought the people they were shooting as informers were informers. They thought they were. They thought they were. So they weren't just shooting random people. Like they weren't just picking out. They, they thought the people they were shooting were, were informers. And in a, a number of cases, absolutely the people were informers. In a number of cases, pretty good evidence they were informers or understandable circumstantial evidence. Some cases you're like, oh no, those people were innocent. But the, the innocent cases are actually, they're, they're, it's hard to prove somebody's innocent after the fact because a lot of this stuff is undocumented. We don't have British record. We don't have good British records where they're like, oh, so-and-so was totally innocent. So-and-so was providing information. We don't have that level of detail. Uh, what, but what you also say is, the, what I would also suggest is what I think is going on, was going on was that the IRA put a lot of effort into monitoring the public. They were, if you were a suspect and they had lists of suspects, you didn't get shot, but they put you under observation. They, they, tap, they tapped your phone if you have a phone. They, they opened your mail. They had people watch your house. And in that circumstance, it's pretty easy to trigger, to, to, look, to, to, to look like you're more guilty than you were or to do something that might look more sinister. Uh, and so what I think is going on is they're collecting a lot for more information, and that's leading to some of the, the bad leads that's leading to some innocent people getting killed. But I also think that they shot a lot. Of, a lot of people they shot actually were providing information as well. So it wasn't all casual. Oh, yeah, yeah. Another issue in a slightly yeah. similar vein, John, is this notion that there was an amount of sectarianism going on there, score settling, that Protestant people in particular, of which there was a relatively high degree in Cork County, that a lot of them were targeted basically out of sectarianism, scoring, settling scores, that kind of thing. What's your opinion on that? So as informers or just kind of generally? In, in, in general, in, well, first of all, in terms of informers, the level, you, you mentioned about the level of evidence right. that often have gathered. Right. Would it be the case that being a Protestant, being a Protestant landlord or whatever, that, that, <laughs> that you started off further down the road as far as gathering any evidence is concerned, and beyond that, just... Shooting people in terms of settling scores. Well, so uh, it wouldn't have helped you if you were Protestant, especially if you because the other thing about Protestants in this period is they're mainly but not exclusively unionists, uh, and they'd also been very a lot of them had been very supportive of the British in the First World War, including doing stuff like recruiting and do it still you know like that kind of vocal support. So they would have been really kind of flying their their flag just and identifying their political allegiance. So you got that, you got that element. Um, people weren't shot, I, I don't think, I haven't really come, people weren't really shot for settling scores. That's not really how things operated. Uh, now, in terms of, um, if you were identified as a potential threat, uh, it may be because you weren't, you didn't have direct personal connections to some of the IRA guys, maybe that made you more likely to be killed, maybe. What I found just in terms of the, the numbers, so my colleague Andy Bielenberg would have better numbers, but I think my figures are something like um, in Cork City, it's like maybe five or six Protestants out of 27 are killed. In North Cork, it's I think one Protestant out of 12. When you say out of 12, one out of 12. So, so civilians, so... 27 civilians killed, 
five five or six are Protestant and 23 are Catholic. So, so, civilians who wouldn't have been identified as having a role in the conflict as an informer. They, they, so they would been, these, yeah. are, these are civilian suspect, civilians suspected of, of being informers. Right, sorry. It, yeah, it's something, it's, it's something like 21 out of 27 were Catholic in Cork City. Uh, in North Cork, it was... I think 11 out of 12 were Catholic in North Cork. Now, West Cork, I think it's more like almost half and half. I don't have the white figures. West Cork is also different, though, because British records show that some of the Protestant population were providing information down there. So some of the people down there, the British records refer to some of their supporters down there who are providing information, getting shot, at, getting shot and seemingly... So not saying everybody down there who was targeted was providing information... But there was definitely information coming from some of the Protestant population down there, and some of the people shot were providing information. That's what you can kind of say. Now, that also, what that also did was that also put a, a lot of suspicion under a, a lot of the population down there, and they were very fearful. And that's kind of that, that memory is really what we feel about. One thing I'd say about just the, the shooting of, of civilian suspects and former suspects is there was always a big mystery about it. Like the only people, who, the only a handful of people knew exactly why they got shot. And so there was always a lot of speculation why some, like, so within the IRA, they'd have a little report, they'd, they'd figure out stuff out, they might ask for permission, they kind of weigh it up and then decide whether to shoot them. The people who knew exactly why they got shot were the people who shot the person and the people who authorized it. And maybe like the local intelligence officer, that's pretty much it. It wasn't like general. And, and it wasn't a question of leaving somebody out on the road Labeled an informer, Andy. Well, they labeled a lot of people. A lot of people were labeled as informers and, and left on the road as warnings. But th it was like it's an it's like an eternal process that went on within the IRA. Some units shot a lot of people. Some units didn't shoot a lot of people. Uh, but but what I'm saying is that the exact cause, a lot of that stuff is really elusive, and there's a lot of mythology about it because and because a lot of people were trying to explain this mystery. So for a long time. A lot of people just assumed everybody who was shot was was guilty, or especially if it wasn't within your own community. But there's also memory of people who think that the, someone was shot for totally innocent reasons, and actually, it wasn't. Or uh, there will be a, a like you know there'll be an explanation that'll go around a neighborhood, and it's totally inaccurate when you look at the historic when you read IRA testimony. So, so you know what I mean. So there's a, yeah. there's a degree of there's a degree of mystery, and there's a degree of confusion about it, and that's still kind of being picked up today. So one thing is you're just kind of like I'm not quite sure exactly what happened in this. So me as a historian has looked at a lot of this. I can I can see certain cases where I, where I go, okay, that person's definitely guilty, and then I'm like, oh, that case, uh, that person was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they thought he was guilty because of A, B, and C. And then another case, I'm like, I have no idea what happened here. And and also, a lot of people who think they're in the know don't have any idea what happened here. And a lot of them are stories kicking around. There's a degree of folklore and there's a degree of rumor. And there's a, a lot of cases are confused in the memory. So the whole thing is, is messy. In another context, John, we, we know, for instance, a number of the Crown agents, whether it be the Black and Tans, the Auxiliaries or whatever, were indisciplined and they were there to spread terror. On the other side of the coin and looking from hundred years down the line, were the volunteers, to a large extent, particularly in an intense theatre like Cork and Munster, 
were they very disciplined or did some things get out of hands in terms of people abusing the power that they had by dint of being in the volunteers? So you, you get like a lot of the, the excesses happen when you're in a position of power, right? So one of the, one of the interesting threads of new scholarship is about the idea of sexual violence during the revolution, right? Uh, and that's and and everybody who's kind of looked at a lot of the cases knew that it was there, but it's only when you tie together a lot of sources, as my my uh, uh, the scholar Linda Conley has done recently, you you realize the extent of it. And what's really common is it's when one force is in a position of power. That's when you get a lot of the sexual assaults. So the black and tans when they're got the upper hand, uh, the uh, up north, like the specials are involved in a couple things up north. Uh, the Free State Army in the Civil War, but also the IRA during the truce period when they're in control of a lot of the countryside, and that's also when you get some of these uh, some of these things where they're they're throwing their weight around, uh, you know, demanding. Like one of the things I came across in the truce period or leading up to the Civil War is people being brought in demanding the drink demanding drink in the name of the IRA. There are a bunch of guys brought in. So that kind of, but, but that stuff comes later and that really stuff comes kind of in the run up to the Civil War. And that's when you get a lot of the discipline kind of breaks down. During the War of Independence, there's a, their degrees, like discipline is stronger in some units than it is in others. Um, they're constantly trying to control people. Like keep in mind that like they're doing a lot of stuff like they're raiding houses for shotguns and like just breaking into people's houses. And there are numerous cases where People steal stuff and then they have to go back and return it and what have you. And and people are court-martialed for that kind of stuff. Or you're seizing someone's car and you, or horse and you, how are you bringing it back? But by and large, one of the, the features of the IRA was that it had a decent reputation amongst the, the wider public. So they weren't regarded as... Uh, in in most places, they weren't regarded as bully boys, what have you. They and and they made and they made a real effort because they were really they were extremely vulnerable. So they they had to keep people on side, and they also had a lot of of high minded type people who thought they were, you know, living and dying for Ireland and took all that stuff seriously. So you have enough of that, which I think which I think uh, acts as a break. Where it breaks, when it starts to break down is in the Civil War. And that's also one of the reasons when you even think about the collective memory of the Civil War, everybody kind of realizes that the Civil War is a lot messier than the War of Independence was. Absolutely. And you talk about them being vulnerable in the knowledge that if they were captured, apart from near certain death, they'd be subjected to some severe torture, as a number of them were who, who, who were captured as well. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things Like we've like the scholarship has focused a lot on Republican violence for, for, for obvious reasons, you know, but we've probably underestimated and and co our collective memory talks about the black and tans, especially reprisals. But like, as you said, they they like if you were caught, if you're caught, you weren't necessarily killed. And there are a couple thousand IRA guys were captured, but a, a, a fair few were shot while they're in custody. A whole lot of them got severe beatings and, and 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 real savage beatings as well and torture and torture was used threats you know mock execution that stuff was pretty common another thing that people don't talk about is uh the crown forces were driving around with hostages on their lorries all across cork and the most active areas they would pull out ira prisoners and tie them to the the the, the front or back of their lorry so they wouldn't be as human shields 
That was going on all throughout 1920, 21. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary when you think about it. And we don't really, that's not really talked about. And that's, that's extra, I'm not, that's extremely well documented. So that kind of, that kind of stuff. And when you think about going, going back to your kind of your original question, why is cork important? Cork is important because the conflict here was heavily militarized and the repri and that triggered reprisals and that considered that, that triggered a lot of state violence. Now, in terms of the broader picture, the Republicans did a really good job at documenting state violence. That state violence did occur, but they made sure they captured it. They, the Republicans made sure they captured it. They made sure they documented it and they made sure the world knew about it. And then they were able to get the word, word out about this state violence through a really sophisticated Republican propaganda machine that used its global diaspora. And it was that, it was the, and when you look at like hearings in, in Washington, D.C. about British conduct in, in Ireland, it's all about Cork. So, so the testimony is all about Cork, and the, the, a lot of the worst successes are in Cork, and a lot of those successes are captured and are broadcast to the world. And that's one, another reason why Cork is such a Cork is like a synonym, uh, a synonymous around the world for for like a year as being a really hot, heavy place for the British forces in Ireland. What about the issue of disappearances, John? Did that arise? Yeah, I mean, so that's connected to. Uh, my colleague Andy Bielenberg and, and uh, Parag O'Rourke just did a big article about disappearances. A lot more people disappeared in um, in Cork than elsewhere. Most of the disappearances in Cork, a lot of them were Crown forces. And you're you're you know normally what you're trying to do is you're you're hiding bodies because uh, you don't want reprisals or give it away. Now there's been kind of there's been a narrative that in Cork there was a hidden wave of people who were disappeared uh, down in Nakraha and Sing Sing. And I think that's been greatly exaggerated. Uh, the, the, the normal, I, I don't have the, the figures to hand, what Andy and Parag's figures are to hand, uh, but there are more people were disappeared and buried secretly in Cork. But that also just reflects, there were also more people killed as informers and dumped on the, on the roadside by the IRA. There are more IRA veteran violent volunteers killed by the Crown Forces. There are more civilians killed by the Crown Forces. Like, there's, the levels of death are across the board, across all categories in Cork. Is there any suggestion, for instance, in Northern Ireland in the 70s, as yeah. we've learned over recent decades, a lot of the disappearance were due to the fact that as far as the provisional IRA as they were, were concerned, in some instances what they did, it would not go down well in their own community you know, they, they basically disappeared people rather than it be exposed that they had killed them. Was there any element of that expected to be involved in what went on around the disappearances in Cork? No, the, 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 on, the only exception to that would be uh, two women were killed, suspected informers, actually, and, and almost certainly guilty informer, informers, uh, Mrs. Lindsay and a gal named Bridget Noble down in the, um, uh, the Barra Peninsula. And the IRA had banned, banned the killing of women prisoners because that was seen as verboten and transgression. And in both those cases, the IRA, the, the local unit decided to, to proceed and they killed those two women secretly. And they uh, were local women. They were local women. So Mrs. Lindsay was a local gentry woman who famously gave away the IRA ambush at Dripsy 
uh, where there were a bunch of captured and and and, uh, and subsequently executed, and she was held as a hostage to try to prevent um, executions of those guys captured, and then the British proceeded with the executions, and so she was killed by the IRA, and they buried her secretly. Uh, and then uh, Bridget Noble down in uh, the Barra was, uh, she correspondence was intercepted where she was informing the local RIC. Uh, I think she was, uh, she had been, she had her hair cropped, uh, which was a kind of a brutal form of intimidation by the IRA against women who were either socializing with or provide or whatever, breaking the boycott of the Crown Forces. And I think after that happened, she identified the people who did it and they were arrested and she was picked up and again, secretly killed. So those are two cases that come out and that, that would have been, they were two of three women who were, who were known to be killed by the IRA as suspects on the island of Ireland. Are their bodies ever subsequently um, discovered? Mrs. L no. No, so there's there so there's still bodies like um, uh, there's still a few bodies that are out there buried. I mean, uh, again, Parker O'Rourke, who did did this work, he he located a body a couple of years ago. He actually and and uh, yeah, he located a body a couple of years ago and it was recovered. It was a British soldier who was buried in bog and Clare, uh, and there are a couple. Some people know exact locations of a couple bodies that are out there. Um, there's also a lot of mythology about bodies that are buried. Some people are like, oh, there's a body in that field as well and totally false or, or what have you. And that, that happens occasionally too. People are convinced that there's a body there and there wasn't. Uh, so yeah, it's a grim, uh, it's, it's grim uh, element of the whole secret war, you know? One um, incident that has been mythologized and was pretty significant anyway, was the ambush to kill Michael Tom Barry. I think it was 18 auxiliaries were killed in it. Then, in recent decades, some people suggested there was a sense of revisionism, this idea that Barry had effectively had them shot after they surrendered. There was also a suggestion that he did this on the basis of it was a second surrender and that after the first one, some of them had suddenly opened up fire again. Where do, where do you stand on the first one? Uh, okay, <laughs> so, so this is really, this has been a real toxic, long-running debate uh, Kind and of, one thing, John, just yeah. about it, when you see, and it has, it has been toxic. In the context of war and how people have behaved, if he had done it, it would be a terrible thing. But would it be, would it be so different than what might be expected? Did we mythologize the fact that we were dealing with the good v. the evil kind of thing? Well, see, one of the things that's interesting about a lot of this is, by and large, when the IRA attacked the Crown Forces and they captured them, they released them. By and large, even all the way up until 1921. Just to give you an indication, here in Cork City, if you were an off-duty British soldier, unarmed, or, or an officer, you were totally safe until they started executing people in uh, February 1921. Up to then, you could walk down the road and you were fine. The IRA would see you and that's fine. Um, by and large, they were still, uh, the IRA, all even into 1921, where if they captured you, they just disarmed you and let you go. So including Tom Barry was involved in a couple of those episodes where they captured a patrol or what have you and then released the guys. That was really typical. So well, so the Kill Michael was atypical in that there was only one survivor and he was basically left for dead. Um, so 
Yeah, I take so I take your point about that. The one of the reasons historians are really nervous about it is this. A lot of this debate came up with the the book by the historian Peter Hart at the IRA and its enemies, and that caused a big controversy. Uh, in that his evidence was questioned about the whether the evidence he cited was accurate or not. That's and and where it came from. That was kind of the big debate, and that made a lot of ner- historians nervous. And there's been a lot of back and forth on that. What I'd say about the actual event is that, and this is kind of where I come down the line, is that there was a a pretty brutal uh, ambush at Kilmichael. Multiple Republicans testify that there was some kind of confusion towards the end of the ambush where the IRA guys came down to take a surrender and shooting started again. And either one or two of the IRA guys were hit, maybe not killed, but they were hit. And then uh, the remaining guys were killed, including a couple people who were disarmed. And this this kind of this is kind of came out later, much later, that a couple of the, the the police were actually threw down their weapons and were disarmed, and then marched down the road and shot. Uh, that's. Now, there, that has, there's also people who said, like, oh, they were all killed after they surrendered. And there's no, I don't think there's any really strong indication of that. What you have is you have some kind of confusion and you have the killing of some people at the, at the end of the ambush um, that some of the participants seem to have been uncomfortable with. Now, part of the whole thing is anytime you read about military history, surrendering is super dangerous. It's always been super dangerous in any war because what you have is people are totally hyped up, adrenaline just bursting out of them. And the only thing you have to do is make a wrong move or whatever. And the other thing is you can try to surrender and maybe somebody else who's with you doesn't doesn't hear the surrender and takes a shot at somebody. And then you're, you know, like it's it's totally hairy, precarious stuff. So there is there are multiple Republicans claim that something happened where the where the, the the police started shooting again when they thought they were surrendered, and then uh, they killed the rest of them basically. Now one of the the reasons for the controversy is Tom Barry and his Tom Barry gave a very kind of striking account in his book Guerrilla Days of Iron in Ireland, and also in his in subsequent TV interviews, and he gave a very clear narrative probably a bit of an exaggerated narrative as well. And one of the things about Tom Barry is he's, he's a great writer. He was, you know, he's like John Wayne on TV. You know, you watch TV, you know, he killed him and he's got his, he's got his cigarette with his filtered cigarette hold, his cigarette holder and he's down holding court. And, and um, he was a dominant voice and he gave a, he gave a version of an event that, that, that exonerated him. Now, other folks who were involved, I mean, other folks talked about a false surrender, but probably not in the exact same way that Barry's narrative. Barry's narrative really took hold because of the way Barry presented it and himself and what have you. That's not to say that his narrative was a lie. Uh, and and actually, anybody, <laughs> people who really knows what the hell happened were the people who were on that road. You know, at five in the evening in November in, 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 uh, in the dark, and yeah. who's to say what the, who the hell was shooting at who, and you know what I mean? Like it's 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 confusing, and so it seems like a 
it's to, 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 for, to call Barry a liar and say this whole thing was invented. Well, you can say there's evidence that he exaggerated or there's evidence that they shot a couple of the people at the end. But it, it's kind of silly, for I think, for, for historians to say that didn't happen because you don't really know what the hell somebody saw or thought they saw in, in, in the dark and at the end of this kind of exchange. And in terms of the reaction, I mean, it, was there an element to it that this was controversial on the basis that the history of the state, the way the War of Independence was to a certain extent mythologized, that therefore one of the good guys could not have done something so bad? I, no, I, well, I think, okay, I think that Barry has a special place because of the success of his book. I think that Guerrilla Days of Ireland has a special place and because of it's such a it's like it's like a you know good guys and bad guys it's like a cowboy yeah. narrative you know <laughs> and he's out fighting the black and tans and what have you and and Barry is a really he's a really compelling narrator on the page and in person so that's part of it right uh, and then the the victory at Kilmichael is a, is the most celebrated ambush because it was probably the clearest. IRA victory of the War of Independence. Uh, you know, there's a whole song about it and what have you. And, and this queried, that's this question. Now, part of the problem was that when questions were asked, which inevitably they would be, to, to, you know, when you challenge this kind of myth, mythologizing, myth, or when you challenge this kind of uh, legendary figure like Tom Barry, it, it was obvious that people were going to ask questions about, you know, sources and all that stuff. And some, there was dispute over the nature of some of the testimony that was cited because it was anonymous. And that was where the historians, that's where the kind of the big faction fighting broke out over the end. That made a lot of people, that made a lot of people in my discipline uh, nervous and stepped away from it. Uh, but, you know, ultimately where, where I stand on it is that uh, there was this really successful ambush. But what I would say uh, about it is that just another element to the public controversy is that in the aftermath of the Kilmichael ambush, the British government accused the IRA flying column of butchering the guys with axes, <laughs> of right. cutting them up. The, the McCroom mutilators is what they were called. So that was, and that there's, there's not any evidence that they were axe murderers, but the idea of, of this was labeled an atrocity in 1920 in a propagandized British government way. So, so when the historical account later on kind of suggests also that it's a, it's a war crime, it kind of had this, this um, there was like a synergy that created a strong backlash against that. Uh, even, yeah, even though it's a little more, everything's a lot more nuanced than all that's been put forward, but... Yeah as, yeah, as it always is. Yeah. John, we're coming to, to the truce um, and the various machinations to, to get there. In terms of public support towards there, we're going into the middle of uh, 21. Is there any signs in Cork again, because it being such an intense theatre of the war, and as well as what the broader public suffered, including the burning of Cork, what have you, is there any signs that the support is wearying and they're getting to a point where is this going to be able to go on much longer? I would say no. Uh, I would say that 
that there had been a wavering and a wobble after, right after the burning of Cork. That's what the Republican documents show, that they were concerned about public opinion. Because keep in mind that it, wasn't, it was within a day or two of the burning of Cork that the bishop, the archbishop of, of Cork, Daniel Cahillan, excommunicated the IRA. So you have a bishop excommunicating the Republicans, and you have the burning of Cork, and then and, and the suggestion that there's going to be more of this kind of severe reprisal. So that there's a bit of a public panic over that, and there's, and there's a lot of concern. But then things stabilize again, and then the IRA continue to shoot British soldiers and police in the city, and the city's not burned down. So all of a sudden they realize that, that maybe the worst is behind them. Now, there's still reprisals, but n- probably not on the, quite on the scale that they were in the autumn. And, and a lot of it's a lot more regulated. Um, IRA activity is, is still climbing in, ni- in June, July 1921. They're not killing as many people, but they're, they're, they're still attacking. They're still trying to kill police and soldiers on a, at a steady clip. Um, public support seems to be solid. There's no indication that it's wavering. The British didn't think it was wavering. Uh, so I, I think that they were, the, the, the IRA felt that they were on the front foot. They were under, they were under pressure, uh, but they felt they were, their organization had gotten better. They weren't really getting hit by arrests. When you look at arrest data for the IRA and County Cork, it's like maybe one or 2% of, of the IRA had been arrested. I mean, like they had, they they were fully, they, they weren't really getting touched. And, and yet nationally, as I understand it, that was one of the things that, as far as Collins was concerned, the price of going back to war and how they'd be able to carry on from there was going to be extremely difficult. So That's what Collins said during the treaty debates. And do, do you I, take I, it at face value? I don't, I mean, and maybe that's also what Collins felt in Dublin. But... The, when you look at the national figures, the IRA campaign was continuing to grow in June, July, 1920, April, May, June, July, 1921. It's growing. It's spreading. It's getting, it's getting more intense. Uh, the, the Dublin Brigade had been hit by arrests, but they still had about 90% of their strength. So there's also like suggestions that the, the customs house, the, the, the IRA took a big blow in the customs house, but they had, I don't know what the IR, I think they had something like 3,000 or 4,000 members and they had, they got about 70 guys were arrested, 80 people arrested in the customs house. So it wasn't like they were on their knees. Um, I think that they, they just realized that there was going to be, the British were ready, were preparing to ramp up. They were starting to bring in more reinforcements. They looked like they were going to, they were going to really hammer and take, and take a, a much harsher uh, counterinsurgency element or, or counterinsurgency strategy and the two sides realized they weren't that far apart and that's what that's where it's got, that's where negotiations opened uh, but I don't think that the IRA wasn't on the on the verge of surrender and I think any suggestion that they were was probably a kind of a post uh, post-conflict justification that's for, interesting, for the treaty yeah. negotiations yeah. finally John just a strange one that occurred to me uh, fast forward to August 22, mm. Mick Collins is touring around and he's warned about the dangers of Cork and they won't shoot me in my own county. Uh, on the basis of everything that preceded that, was it inevitable that they would? Um, like, they they weren't going to give him a free pass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing of the Belt of Law. Like, he was the head of the, of the, he was head of government, head of the National Army, like so, were they not supposed to? 
were they supposed to not take a shot at him when it came by? Uh, you know, I, I think I think the whole Bell and the Blah episode shows you. Uh, well, one thing is, Collins Collins hadn't lived in Cork since he was a boy. Fifteen, I think he went. Yeah, down. fifteen. He'd gone away, so he didn't really. So it was his county, but really he was a Londoner by that stage and a dub and a dub by that stage. Uh, he didn't have anybody from Cork with him when he was shot. <laughs> so surrounded so by a bunch of dubs, which makes you question judgment. But the idea of just kind of being on those back roads, uh, it shows you that he thought the war was over and he thought that he was, uh, maybe he thought that he was untouchable. Or at the minimum, he was re- he showed bad judgment. That's what I would say. And, and probably I would veer towards recklessness. But... Shinny, as they say, the rest is history. Yes. John Bargainova, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks, Mick. That's it for today, folks. In the next episode of the Irish Examiner podcast series on the centenary of the War of Independence, we look at the women who had a role in the conflict and how their involvement was, for a long time, completely ignored. I'd like to thank JJ Vernon on Sound. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to us on all the usual platforms and you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie. See you soon. 